Hey, I'm Craig Finn. You're listening to That's How I Remember It. This is a podcast that examines connection between memory and creativity. Each episode features one creative guest and myself talking about how their memories and life experiences influence the stories that they tell. My guest today is Scott Z. Burns. Scott's a writer, producer, and director. He's written films like Contagion, The Bourne Ultimatum, The Informant, and many more. Scott wrote and directed the 2019 film, The Report, about the torture program inside the CIA. And he was a producer on the Al Gore global warming documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. You can look at IMDb for all of Scott's credits. There are many. The other thing about Scott is that he's a very good friend of mine. Back in about 2010, he reached out as a Holt Steady fan. We had lunch, and we talked about working on something together. We're both from suburban Minneapolis. We spoke a lot about growing up there. Over the years, our friendship blossomed, and we developed a musical television idea called National Anthem. In 2020, that project was greenlit at a TV network, and then later, after a whole bunch of work on it, it was unfortunately ungreenlit. We talk a little bit about that here. But after that disappointing experience, we both went back to work. Some of the fruits of Scott's creativity and vision arrived this week with Extrapolations, a show on Apple TV that does exactly that, extrapolates into the future how climate change might affect people and places around the globe. There are a ton of great actors in it. Here are but a few. Sienna Miller, David Diggs, Diane Lane, Forrest Whitaker, Tobey Maguire, so many more. It's thought-provoking, sometimes scary, and always fascinating. I am so glad to have Scott Burns here with me today. The history's rewritten When the memories get meddled with The way that I remember it Scott Burns, thanks for joining us. Uh, I would like to start this out how I start all of these and with this question. Do you consider yourself to have a good memory? I think I used to. <laughs> uh, and when did it when did it stop? Uh, sometime around the beginning of pandemic. Why do you what do you think that is that just a certain age or, or do you think that the pandemic was a force that that let you let go of memory? You know, I don't really know what happened. I have an actor friend who's actually in the show, a guy named Douglas Hodge who says there is a thing called full brain syndrome. And it may just be that, you know, my, my brain reached its capacity sometime um, when it filled up with, with information about COVID. Yeah, I, I get that. I think I have, you know, I, I, I started this podcast thinking that all writers would say they have good memories and they're telling the right side of the story, you know? And I'm one of those. I think I have a good memory. I used to think I had a really good memory for names and faces. When I started touring a lot, I let I started to let go of them quickly, meaning I'd meet someone and I'd say, oh, I'm never going to see that person again because I was moving on to the next city. And then I became worse because I wasn't kind of engaging. But it may be something similar to that. But, what you know, as far as your memory... Um, how do you think it affects your storytelling and, and how does it show up? I think what ends up happening to me is I, I'm interested in the part that is fuzzy mm -hmm. um, because it's an opportunity to make things up. Um, and I sometimes wonder anyway if when I'm remembering something, I'm already 
embellishing some way or another or or making choices in the way I choose to tell the story that are, you know, what I kind of call narrative drift mm-hmm. that, you know, anybody in therapy has probably found themselves doing this as well, that you tell a story, but you become aware of an audience. And once you have an audience, you have a different set of obligations that are as much to them as to what really happened. Yeah, I think that when we tell stories, uh, part of it, if we, if we consider ourselves good storytellers, which I'm guessing you and I both do, we, we, we try to be entertaining. And sometimes there's details you move around or present differently. Um, For sure. Reality is much less interested in being entertaining than I think either one of us are. Well, one thing I, I think is one of the ways when we write, one place memory shows up is detail. And I, you know, I say like, you know, uh, I've said this before, but like one thing, you know, I needed a car name for one of my songs and the Uber came and it was an Altima and an Altima ends up in my songs. I don't know cars that well. So it, it, I kind of had to, that had to happen. But do you find that, is that, is that where you're taking details from like your own memories? Yeah. You know, there, it's funny. Um, I forget the movie now, speaking of memory, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, it's a Frankenheimer movie from the early 60s. And someone's trying to come up with the, the number of members of the Communist Party that are currently in Congress. And the, the camera zooms in on a Heinz 57 um, bottle and says, there are 57 known communists. Um, so I do look around. I also have this very old baseball encyclopedia on my desk when I need to make up a name for a character. Um, And I I spend a lot of time looking at that or um, thinking about hockey players from my youth and I name people after them. Amazing. I wonder if, you know, uh, as as someone, I don't have children, that that sometimes I hear a name and my, my thing is like, well, I'm never going to be able to name a child, but um, I could make a song out of that, you know? <laughs> um, you know, we both have a lot of friends who are writers. And one thing that I always think when I'm, when I'm engaging with my friend's work is the details. You can kind of sometimes see where the details came from, you know? Um, when I see, I, I pick up certain things on your things. You know, Franz wrote a book and I in the novel, I was like, oh yeah, I, I know that. I know where that story came from. But um, one of the things I, when I was watching Extrapolations, um, there was some music stuff in there. And, you know, in episode three, I think it's, it, you know, you mentioned both Prince and The Clash. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's Scott. That's, those are two things we intersect on. Um, um, but, you know, and how does, I, I, I know you as a music fan, but I'm wondering how music kind of fits in to your work? Weirdly, I can, and I prefer to write with music on, which a lot of writers I know don't do. The, the only time it's ever been weird for me and it's, is if I listen to Dylan, I sometimes end up typing lyrics um, in the middle of, of scenes. Um, I, it's so I, I don't listen to Dylan anymore. Maybe I'm, I'm past that. Certainly familiarity allows you to, to not get 
you know, caught up in the lyrics, but I love listening to music when I write. So that's a big part of it. And there are, you know, emotional sort of trances you can put yourself in depending on, on what you're listening to. What I, what I liked about that episode of the show was I was thinking, what music will people 20, 30 years from now look back on and, and remember the way that we might look back on, on music from, you know, whether it's Sinatra or music from the 60s or 70s. The same thing happens in episode seven. We created, it, it takes place in 2068. And so we have Marianne Cotillard calling out for the centennial playlist. Um, and it's a hundred years since the summer of love. Yeah. And you know, we managed to get up, up and away and some other interesting tunes to creep in there. Um, do you have an early memory of music? Do you like, do you, do you remember the first music you kind of, that turned you on? So, I mean, so much. I remember <clears throat> you and I both grew up in, in Minnesota and I remember going to the Byerleys in Golden Valley, Minnesota, which bizarrely sold albums um, in the, the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and I don't know how I wound up buying the, the first albums I did. You know, I, I somehow bought a Harry Nilsson, Son of Schmilson album when I was nine. Um, I, I suspect my, my older brother had something to do with that. Um, I'd heard Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant at summer camp, but I had to buy that album mm-hmm. right away. Um, you know, then more sort of mainstream things like Elton John and Bye Bye Miss America Pie um, were all sort of early songs that had, you know, really stuck with me. But bizarrely, there was a song that I remember from the radio called In the Year 2525 by Zager and Evans. Mm-hmm. And, and when we were doing, again, episode seven, I said to our, our music supervisor, can we get that song? It used to, I mean, I was so scared of that song. It, it scared me even more than Led Zeppelin did. <laughs> um, and Led Zeppelin was just scary for a whole host of reasons, but um, in the best ways. But that Zager and Evans song really stuck with me because it was such an invitation to an existential crisis. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And and obviously um, Extrapolations kind of does that with years, um, which is an influence. How about like, was there early memories of, of film or TV that you think made you want to do, go to be a filmmaker and a television writer? For sure. I mean, I, I really think for me, the big moment was probably, it must have been within a month around 1972 or 73, um, when I saw Dog Day Afternoon um, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest um, around the same time. I'm pretty sure those movies came out the, the same year. Um, but those movies w- were so transformative to me. 
um, I was so wrapped up in them. And then, you know, I was fascinated by Pacino and loved Serpico and loved the Godfather movies. But those were sort of my early paths into it. And, and once I had been bitten by it, I was really taken with the idea of what sitting in a theater watching a big image was. And probably the most profound example of that was a Terrence Malick movie called Badlands, um, where there were these big skies that looked like the big skies that I saw in rural Minnesota mm -hmm. um, with big, white, puffy clouds. Um, and it was stunning to me how, you know, what I later knew was called the uninflected image um, could, could reach inside of you in a way that I think only music did for me. You know, language to me was, was where I wound up because <clears throat> I wasn't a great guitar player and I couldn't draw or paint. Well, you, you you settled somewhere pretty good. Um, and funny enough, when people when I'm pressed and someone says, "What's your favorite movie?" and you have to name one, I usually say Badlands. That that is um, uh, an epic to me. Just sort of a Minneapolis bonus question, just for my what I'd like to. Um, do you remember what what theaters were you watching these movies in? The the places I remember the, the most were the Cooper Theater. Um, which was on Highway 12, I think. Mm -hmm. now, um, three, now 394, but yeah, 12. Right. But I remember going to see 2001 there, and they used to sort of play music, and there were these beautiful sort of postmodern smoking lounges on either side of where you sat. And I was kind of crawling around on one of those with my dad who smoked and the movie started and the big sort of, you know, orchestral strike of the beginning of that movie and the curtain opening um, was so profound and big. And that, that movie obviously only gets bigger from there. Um, so that was, that was huge. And then um, the Uptown Theater was a place that I, parked myself in um, quite a bit when I was in high school and in, in college with my buddy Duffy. And we watched, you know, things like Wings of Desire and the Rocky Horror Picture Show sure. 20, 30 times and Atlantic City and a lot of other really great movies. So those, those were big. Um, when I went to the University of Minnesota, the Varsity Theater was kind of a great place to go. Um, I think once I saw The Graduate, I probably went every day for a week and yeah. tried to, you know, memorize as much of that movie as I could. I, uh, I, I, the Cooper was just a classic. And uh, I also remember the smoking section, which, you know, now feels like, did that happen in our lifetime? But I remember the, the raised smoking section where people would smoke. And uh, I saw um, 
uh, River's Edge there, and I saw um, Last Temptation of Christ there, and uh, just a, a beautiful classic theater. They they literally don't make them like that anymore. Um, so when you are go to you know film, music, books, art, etc., are there any eras that you're particularly interested in? Like if you know, is there is there any time period that you're like, no matter what it is, I'll watch that? Certainly. Film in the 70s um, is, is a sweet spot for me. Um, there were so many great American movies that came out then. And, you know, obviously it was a time when I was, um, you know, getting to be a teenager and things like Apocalypse Now and the Godfather movies. All of those things were, you know, were there for me at a time when I think my brain was in the right space for it. Um, I think I felt that way quite a bit as well about, you know, Updike and Salinger and Mailer and those American writers, especially when they started writing about suburbia because I I grew up in suburban Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. Um, And the experience of, you know, being kind of disillusioned by, um, by what that meant, that this was this great promise that had drawn people outside of cities where they could have, you know, yards without even thinking about what an unnatural phenomena a yard is, um, that... the creation of the American suburb and everything that went with it um, was something that I I took issue with from a very young age. I actually think that this thing is might bond us and maybe connected us um, to become friends. Now, now I'm getting on 15 years ago, but I think those were part of our earliest conversations. Yeah, I just found them found the whole thing to be a pretty, a pretty dangerous proposition um, that wasn't really able to deliver on, on its promises. You know, there's, there's something about the integrity of the city and there's something about the integrity of being in the woods or somewhere, you know, where nature really holds sway. Um, that, that middle area is a place where you can get in a lot of trouble. (laughs) Well, I suspect we did. Um, our, um, so here's a question I just came up with that, um, that I'm interested in. Um, and I asked someone else this, have you ever had any piece of art, a film, a music, a book, whatever kind of ruined for you, um, due to the memories attached around it? For sure, that has happened. Um, I think there are some early Elton John songs that were ruined by some later Elton John songs. <laughs> um, I I feel like I was such a devotee of Paul McCartney until maybe Ebony and Ivory came out, and I began to wonder how someone who had done things that were so amazing could end up there, but maybe that's a better song than I'm giving it credit for. Is it? Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I was sort of thinking about like, 
a breakup or something like that, does that ever like, is there ever things that just trigger like, um, cause I know, I know for me, when I look back on early eighties, like underground music, it's literally my favorite thing. Early eighties mainstream music is wildly depressing to me. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there, there's, when I was in, at the university of Minnesota, um, I, was in a relationship with someone a couple of years older than than I was and infinitely more sophisticated than me. And um, there were a couple of bands that we loved at the time, foremost among them, Squeeze. And I remember um, that she went to go see a Squeeze show somewhere and somehow found herself backstage and one thing led to another and I lost touch with her for a couple of days and I've never really been able to listen to like, you know, the squeeze song again. I tempted by the fruit of another, I'd say. <laughs> exactly. So I hope she doesn't mind me telling that story. I mean, that was, that was exactly what I was after. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, that was, there was no way for me to, to go back to any of any of those songs, especially Black Coffee in Bed. Mm-hmm. Which is a great, um, I'm still a fan, but I don't have that, that bad. <laughs> All right. I want to talk about the new show, Extrapolations, which is awesome and, and it's exactly that it's, you're pro- extrapolating projecting out from now to see all the way that climate change might affect us in the future right away you mentioned 2015 the paris meetings is kind of a marker you know we were issued a very stern warning and the pilot which starts at 2037 uh these warnings are correct there's a great deal of fallout and there seems to be kind of future memory at work like oftentimes the characters are sort of lamenting something they don't have anymore. Animals that are extinct or nearly so, cities that are partially underwater. And to me, there's a sadness in it. Um, now, when you're creating this show, it obviously makes you want to be active and increase awareness, however we can, against climate change. Does it make you want to experience natural things in this moment more? I mean, is that nihilistic of me? Or is that... Because that's sort of one thing I felt like I wanted to see some of this stuff. I hope that that's, I think that's a really great response. I think for me, you know, I'm very excited to return to Alaska this summer um, because I feel on some level, the experience of the wild is, is one of the things that I, I'm fighting for. Um, and yet even saying that I recognize that that's become a huge entitlement. You know, a lot of people can't afford to go to Alaska and the depletion of the natural world around us um, is something that is visited differently on people depending on their resources. And so, you know, when you look at a, a situation like in Flint, Michigan, where, where people couldn't even drink water out of the tap, um, clearly that's a, a, a failure of a, a, a public contract that people should have the right to clean water. But more importantly, it sort of says that 
there are frontline communities that are going to be experiencing the worst of climate change, pollution, all of these other things um, way before the rest of us. And, And I think a corollary to that that scares me is when you look around at at VR and AR and you see how brilliant and beautiful the colors are and how great the sound is and that it, it starts to surpass what people might experience in the outside world or that the outside world gets so hard to get to mm-hmm. um, for them that it becomes the surrogate I worry greatly about what that will do to our understanding of the importance of being able to go put your feet in the water um, or to, you know, to, to really get splashed by a whale. I mean, the first time I ever went kayaking um, in Alaska and there were humpback whales around, um, I was sitting there in my kayak and this whale came very close and it, it surfaced by me and it exhaled. And if you've never heard a whale exhale close up, it sounds unbelievably human, but at scale. And so it's so intimate to hear the exhalation of a whale at a distance which you would normally only maybe hear like a lover. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really it's it's incredibly compelling and then this tower this plume of whale exhale hung there in the air and the wind blew it on top of me and the people i was kayaking with were like no paddle and i'm like why and then when i had to throw all my gear away because you can't get whale snot off of anything um i began to understand why (laughs) you don't want to paddle towards the plume Oh my God, that, wow. I was, you know, when I was talking, when I was watching the show, it it put me in touch with this memory when I was, I grew up in Edina and uh, right across the street from a creek, the Nine Mile Creek. And when I was a kid, there used to be these black and yellow salamanders everywhere. And I would dig them up in the creek and, and you'd see them. At some point when I got to be about 10 years old, they just, I didn't see them anymore. And I don't know if that was climate change, but it's certainly an ecological event. And I remember being, like a a melancholy a sadness as a kid that they weren't there anymore like you know it was like the the summer and they should have been out there and some of the other things the frogs were there the toads were there the snakes were there but the the salamanders weren't and i'm wondering if you've had i mean i guess the whale is is one part of have you had any anything else you can kind of put in touch with in your own life yeah i mean the whale was actually the episode i wrote first and it came out of you know my father was very ill at the time and was you know was leaving the world and my life and had alzheimer's and it was excruciating um and so on some level that episode was about saying goodbye um and that that's a part of extinction that we don't get around to all the time, that we're saying goodbye to things forever, which is is something that I feel at least deserves a conversation. I don't understand why a corporation gets to make a judgment about a business practice that's going to remove an animal from all of our experience. I think about, 
you know, being a kid and, and, you know, playing Little League and my dad saying, go get him, Tiger. Well, what does that look like in 15 years if there are no Tigers? What if your experience of a polar bear is a Klondike wrapper? Right. Um, like those, those are huge cultural losses, but they're also, I think, losses to us as creative people and as artists because it's, you know, the, the, you know, the risk of sounding cheesy. It's the majesty of those animals that is holding up that end of the metaphor, not the Klondike wrapper. Yeah, it, it has to be more than a word at the end of Let's Go Get Them, you know? Yeah, um, so that, that was a very big part of, you know, of this process for me in telling these stories. What, you, you were a producer on, on An Inconvenient Truth in 2006, Al Gore documentary about global warning, um, warming. Did you, is that, did, were you very engaged with this issue before? Was it, was it through working that film or did it, was it, was it a lifetime thing? Does extrapolations begin there or when? It actually begins before then. I mean, when I was a, a kid, I was, you know, I went to summer camp in Northern Minnesota and I, I loved being in the woods and I loved hearing loons on the lake. And, you know, my dad worked in the space program and I loved looking up at the stars and actually being able to see them. So those things were all a big thing. But the, the big pivot for me, if I had to, to find one, was I got, you know, when I, when I graduated from the University of Minnesota, I wanted to be a fiction writer, I think, but I didn't really know, you know, there aren't ads for that job in the paper. Yeah. And my parents wanted me to, you know, make a living. So I went to Chicago and I worked at an ad agency. And a couple of years later, the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened. And I went to Alaska to work um, as a volunteer at a center for cleaning otters. And so I, I found myself <clears throat> in Seward, Alaska at, at this bizarre place, um, cleaning otters next to, you know, a young woman who was from New York who had actually gone there to kick um, because there wasn't a lot of heroin in Seward, Alaska. <laughs> um, and it became a very complicated place because some of the otters that we, that we cleaned didn't seem to have oil on them. And it, I realized that Exxon was marching journalists through this, this center every day to show them that, that they were making an effort to, to take care of the mess. Um, and I think for me, it was enraging, but it also was intriguing because it showed me that this was a story that had a lot of unexpected twists in it and that, you know, there's, there's hypocrisy, there's heartbreak, there's heroicism. Um, there are a lot of other things that probably don't begin with H that um, are, are to be found in, in these climate stories and that, you know, we tend to, to cut to the end of the story a lot in both literature and film about, you know, 
the planet being being desolate and that we have not changed our ways. And I, I didn't want to do that. You know, I, I didn't want to go there in part because other people have gone there so elegantly. Um, and I understand the desire to go to the bloody dramatic part of a story if you're a writer. But I also was interested in the middle. Um, and there didn't seem to be the same amount of storytelling around, you know, what, you know, I always call the messy middle, um, where it's, you know, where there is choice and there's our own desire for comfort and gratification. And yet there's also an increasing knowledge um, that if we keep going the way we're going, we're going to be hurting people we've never met. And those people will be our grandchildren. Um, there's a great book I read called If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal about um, where this guy, Justin Gregg, who wrote the book, um, talks about prognostic myopia and the fact that human beings have adapted to be very good at near-term threat. Um, but in exchange, we really struggle with something that is beyond the event horizon. And the goal in extrapolations was to bring the event horizon a distance away from the audience where it became hard to, to deny its possibility. Hey, this is Craig Finn, host of That's How I Remember It, which is supported by DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy, with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, TikTok, etc., all the major streaming services. Use the app to upload new releases, edit account details and metadata, get notified when you've earned royalties, and see your stats. And you'll get 30% off your first year's membership by visiting distrokid.com slash craigfan. So hey, get your music out there and do it easily. Thank you, DistroKid, for supporting. That's how I remember it. The, you know the show. The show's set in the future, so you, you project or predict certain technological advances. The way we communicate, travel, even when we look out, you know, the com- way we communicate, travel, even when we look at what we look out when we look out the window. These advances have not answered our climate problem. Is that tricky from a writing standpoint, or is it obvious that technology can interface with the natural world? No in a way that would make enough difference? I think it's something to dive into because it's a choice. You know, I, I sometimes wonder why don't we have a Manhattan project for pulling carbon out of the atmosphere? How has that not happened yet? Whether funded privately or publicly. When we made An Inconvenient Truth, even at that point, I remember Al Gore saying, there are solves that technology has for almost all of these problems, you know, except for the very basic problem that there are people who are benefiting from the status quo who are not that interested in stepping aside or foregoing the maximum amount of money they can make off of the shit that they've built. Um, And 
that isn't a technology problem. That's that's a human problem. And you know, in the show, one of the characters sort of says, you know, will we solve climate change before it solves us? And that that's what I wanted to get into is what what has to happen inside of a person to start caring about the outcome of this particular problem. Yeah. You know, there's also this, like in episode three, especially there's sort of a, I mean, you have a rabbi character and, um, and there's a sense of faith and religion in the face of climate change and in a sense of carrying on traditions, you know, uh, Old Testament stories, Torah stories like Noah and the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, where God burns cities down, the plagues, places where some of our oldest texts give us warning. And um, I'm curious why you felt compelled to include this narrative. narrative. I mean, there are people in this world that think only God can save us, but it seems to me that might be less of a feeling that all religion is anti-science, but maybe a recognition that we should find the divine and the natural world we live in and, and, you know, choose to honor and uphold that. I have so many things to say about that. I mean, I, I wrote that episode in a way as my own sort of exploration of, of spirituality. You know, I, I look at, you know, the stories in the Torah where God does some some pretty harsh things to to humans, and I've struggled and asked questions about it. And I worked with a wonderful rabbi from from Minnesota, actually named Steve Leader, who's now in LA, and we talked about about what we can learn from it. And and look, you know, these are texts that you can sort of take whatever you want from, um, because they are so rich and complicated and steeped in history. But I can certainly remember when I was a kid trying to reconcile some of these stories with what I saw going on around me. Um, you know, and there's, there's a moment between the rabbi and this bat mitzvah student where, you know, he says, well, is it God's glacier or is it all of our glacier? Um, And for me, that became a very interesting um, moment to contemplate the stewardship that, you know, if there is a God, I think would be imparted unto us um, that this is a place that we have to take care of. Um, you know, that I, I you know, I, I found myself going back and reading a fair amount of Martin Buber um, while I was writing it and thinking about, you know, what is our responsibility to each other? Um, and that I may never get to the end of my agnosticism, I probably won't. But that doesn't prevent me from arriving at a place where I understand my obligation to my fellow person um, and to the planet. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, to me, one of the striking things about this show and, and some of your other shows and some of your other projects as well 
is the way you project like sort of the profiteering in, a, in power stuff, in income inequality, will affect the conversations and, and our societies we grapple with these things. Um, in the show, David Schwimmer plays a developer. He's developing high ground properties for the wealthy. And, I, you know, that's something I, I, I was like, oh, yeah, damn, that's going to happen. And you had this with Contagion as well, Jude Law's character, which turned out to be wildly prescient. You just about had him doing everything but selling horse to warmer um 10 years before is this is this like when you're projecting these things out is this the first place you start like how are gonna people gonna make money off this i i think it may be a little less specific it's more you know what what are the human appetites that are bound to get excited by you know what's going on in the world around us. It, it feels to me, you know, I, I was having this conversation with somebody about crypto the other day, and they were saying, well, when it started, it seemed like such a great idea that the unbanked would be able to send money to each other and they wouldn't have to pay fees. And if you were in one country working, you could send money back to your family in another. Um, and I said, yeah. And then five minutes later, it was being used by arms dealers and sex traffickers um, and terrorists. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, whether we're talking about splitting the atom or cryptocurrency, it, it seems like it doesn't take humans long to discover the worst application of, of an idea or of technology, uh, like after they've discovered, you know, sort of a, a, a more you know, generous, gentle, helpful expression of it. And, you know, that to me is, has always interested me as, as a writer. You know, there's a, a great moment in Apocalypse Now where Brando talks about the Red Cross coming and vaccinating these children way up the river um, in this little isolated tribe. And then the, the helicopters go away and the parents show up and hack off the vaccinated arms. And I remember seeing the movie and just being devastated by that because of the brutal logic that goes with it and how we really struggle to understand each other um, mm -hmm. in ways that are at times beautiful, but at times like so destructive, you know, um, when it came time for me to write dialogue for the whale, I kept thinking, so what are the limitations of a whale? Um, you know, what's its need for past tense or future tense? Um, does it exist in just the present? Clearly it has a memory of where it's been, but you know, the whale, doesn't understand what a lie is because <laughs> yeah. why would it do that right right well it, it shouldn't it shouldn't have a need for that right no and yet nature is filled with that i mean it's called camouflage um in nature and so animals do misrepresent themselves to escape prey but even that i wonder you know when I think about that logic, if, if that's really me building a bridge to something more noble than a lie. 
you know, in, in thinking about memory, and when we do these things, records, albums, films, whatever, they stick around. Obviously, Contagion itself had a pretty new life when the pandemic started. I think it became the most watched film for a few weeks, right? Um, yeah. It was a bizarre time for me. Angie was working directly with COVID patients. I moved out of the house, moved in uh, with her sister and her family. I kept seeing you on television, CNN and whatever, being interviewed about contagion. And the one thing you kept saying is that the scientists you consulted when you made that film said this scenario is is when, not if. You know, it was going to happen. So when you make a project like that or like extrapolations, does it feel in some way, like you're planting a flag that as we move forward, that, that, that you're going to be able to look back and see like either, Hey, look, I was right. Or I hope I was wrong, etc. A lot of creepy shit happened with contagion. Um, you know, it was sort of the end of me in social media because there were weird Nostradamus death threats and stuff. And it just wasn't worth it to stay involved in that. You know, I, nobody said, and it'll be happening seven years from now. They just said, you know, it will be happening. And there are really significant, um, you know, similarities between what we did in the movie and what happened in the world. Not the least of which is that as we encroach more on wild spaces, um, we're going to come in contact with animals that have viruses that work inside of them that will also work inside of us, namely bats and pigs. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I forget the number, but the number of people in the world who every day deal with pigs in agriculture is astronomical. And a pig, um, if you talk to a virologist, is called a mixing vessel um, because something that works in a pig will probably work inside of other mammals. And, you know, in the case of a bat, they live at the tops of trees. So they come in contact with stuff that we never have. Mm -hmm. And when we start cutting down trees, um, we are going to end up, you know, getting involved with the wrong end of the bat. Um, You know, when they, when they eat mangoes and then drop the pits and then a horse, you know, I don't want to scare everybody, but, (laughs) you know, like there were two viruses that do exist in the world, one called Nipah and one called Hendra that, you know, I kind of put together to make the virus in contagion. And that's not hard to do. These, These scientists are doing things like that, you know, in hopefully in labs that are very secured um, where they, the results won't get out. I think with, with extrapolations, the big difference was we could see what's happened with pandemics in the past. Um, with, with the science around climate change, it's so far proven to be incredibly accurate. Um, And we are seeing all of the things that the scientists predicted. But it's a very dangerous experiment to run because if you remember from science class, part of what makes a science experiment that is that you can repeat it and get the same result. We will not be able to repeat this experiment. This one we get to do once. And it is so multifactorial in terms of 
the way the ocean interacts with the air and the weather. I mean, we can't even predict the weather right now. Um, and what we're doing to food columns in the ocean, it all is so complicated um, that it's just a horrifying risk to take. And I'm not doing this to scare people. I'm doing this to get people to move towards bravery and action. You know, one of the things that I had to deal with when we were making the show was people saying, well, you have to leave people with hope. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think, you know, well, the Buddhist in me has a real problem with that because hope is attachment. Um, and I want to leave people motivated to act. I would just encourage everyone to replace hope with the word courage. Um, courage means that, you know, you're, you're capable of making a difference. Hope sort of keeps you on the sidelines. And that to me is, is, is why I, I kind of want to speak up about this and why I wanted to make this series is I don't think hope's going to get us there. You know, Vince Lombardi said, hope is not a strategy. I think a lot of other people did too, but that was just the thing in my high school. Um, and we need a strategy. And again, like we have all of the solves we need, except the human solve of how we move each other to a more thoughtful place. Right on. Agreed. Beautiful. I have two more. And um, this one is, is about attachment, really. A couple of years ago, we collaborated on a project, National Anthem, a musical television show. And um, we got uh, pretty far. We, we had a writer's room with a bunch of talented writers, created a bunch of episodes, wrote a bunch of songs, even recorded a few with T-Bone Burnett. And then the show isn't made, which is part of the business. Um, this has happened to you before. And, you know, possibly someday we revisit. But I wonder if the characters you create stick with you and, and if things, people you create and characters you create, when, when something doesn't happen, do you mourn them, the worlds you've created, or have you been doing it long enough or it's just something you get accustomed to and you move forward? I don't think I'll ever get used to seeing the things that I worked hard on dying. It, it really hurts. And... All I know is that I'm safer when I'm working than when I'm waiting for other people to, you know, green light something or, or review it, um, that the, the part of this that is the most exciting for me, you know, with you certainly was the collaboration. Um, and that if I allow the fact that, you know, we were greenlit and then they took the fucking green light away from us to, you know, to be all I take from that experience. Um, it's, it's going to be even worse. So <laughs> I loved what we did. I, I think about Arnie and all of those characters and those stories and that writer's room, because it becomes about, the, the people who you try and make stuff with, whether it's your room or your band or, or your cast, um, like that's your tribe. And 
I now, you know, as a writer, when you work alone for so long and then you finally get to go and share with other people, it's that's that has to be the part that fills you with joy, not, you know, because after that, you don't really know. Yeah. For me, I mean, being in a writer's room was such an uh, amazing and unique experience and like, like really kind of life changing creatively. And I still do. I especially think of our character Odin that we created, um, who I think we all had a fondness for, but it's, you know, I'm the same way as you. It's like, okay, well what's next and let's, let's keep going. I was recent reading Rob Thomas who made party down an article. It was like an oral history about the show. Um, just the other day, and he was saying that before he was in television, he couldn't believe some of the shit that got on the air. But then once he was in the business, he felt it was a miracle that anything got made at all. And um, I was thinking about this, and this is kind of my last question. You attach yourself to pretty heavy stories. This one's about climate change. Contagion's about a pandemic. The report is about torture and our government's role in it. You have not made a lighthearted romp, you know. Um, is it... Is it because you feel a duty to use the power of entertainment to shine a, light, shine a light on these issues? And also, how do you keep it being entertaining? Well, the first part, I don't know that I'm that organized in, in my approach. What I do know is it's true that the least likely outcome of anything in the movie business is that it's going to get made. And you have to accept that. Um, it becomes even less likely when you're taking an idea to them rather than executing an idea that they're bringing to you. Um, and, you know, with the exception pretty much of The Bourne Ultimatum um, and some other movies that I, I've, I've done some script work on, I've always been bringing it to, to someone, trying to get them excited about making it. Um, so... I think if you know that, um, you realize you have to pick something you're really passionate about because no matter what, you know, it's going to be a very, very difficult struggle. The informant took like six or seven years to get made. And that, um, you know, and that was upsetting, especially at that time in my career when I wanted to get a movie made. Um, so... Like, I guess I know that the only way I'm going to have the stamina to get through it is if it's something that I can't not write. I always imagine a Venn diagram of what I'm interested in and what Hollywood might make. And it has the most slight overlap. And I've got to make a living inside of that very tiny space. One one of the scenes that struck me in extrapolations is the singing in the rain, um, because you're dealing with so much heavy stuff, and all of a sudden there's this great light, sort of light moment. I mean, it, it doesn't it, it comes off both ways, but but I, I mean it, that that kind of choice must be you know for for a few minutes there is beautifully entertaining, and I wouldn't say you forget about all the problems, but you do puts a smile on your face. Yeah, I don't. I mean. But you, you, you know me, so you have the advantage of this. I don't really, like, I'm not a depressive. I don't, you know, I don't walk around um, thinking 
the darkest of thoughts about outcomes. Um, I want to entertain people um, much like you. Um, and so, like, for me, I know if I don't entertain them, they're not gonna, gonna laugh or cry or remember or share. And ultimately, like, that's the point of me doing this, is I, I want to be an entertainer. And there is almost nothing more entertaining than, you know, to be Diggs doing Singing in the Rain. Um, and so, you know, when I brought that up to him, he did not even hesitate. Like, that's something he loved. Um, so it was, it's always about, is there a way that we can, you know, put a little sugar coating on this bitter pill called Earth? All right, there you have it. An amazing talk with Scott C. Burns. Please check out his new show, Extrapolations, on Apple TV. A huge thanks to Scott for joining me here. It feels like a long time in the making, but I think we found the right time. Also, a huge thanks to you for listening. We've got even more great guests coming up, so keep listening and make sure to subscribe to That's How I Remember It. I'm Craig Finn. Stay positive. Stay positive.